Welcome to The Scientist Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to understand the realities of research life. We bring you into the lives of top academics so that you can get to know the people behind the research that's shaping our world. I'm Jamie, your host, and in this podcast, I'll be bringing you candid conversations each week with those on the cutting edge of their fields. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Scientist Podcast. This week, our guest is someone whose work is revolutionising the treatment of depression and potentially shifting some of our most fundamental assumptions about the treatment of mental illness. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California and a senior study author of a groundbreaking new study into the treatment of depression. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Jyoti Mishra. Dr. Mishra, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, I have to say, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago preparing for today, and I haven't stopped thinking about this since, because depression is something that is so common and so diverse. And just before we get into the research and the details, I'd love for you to characterize the scale of the medical problem depression poses in the States, but also in the UK. Oh, it's such a great problem, you know. It's that something we're all familiar with. If you look at the worldwide mental health burden and the prevalence, it's one in four people suffer from depression. And if you count the numbers, it's 300 million people around the world that currently have, you know, problems with depression. And it's so familiar to all of us. Each one of us, there's like more than 20% chance that we would experience depression or a depressed episode at any part in our lives. You know, thinking about how we can improve our well-being is something we think about every day. I think anyone can relate to the problems of depression. Yeah, one of the interesting characteristics about depression is, as you said, one in four people will get it at some point in their life. But it tends to reoccur in those who do get it. What does the literature say about why depression tends to reoccur in the percentage of the population that runs into it? Yes, depression is definitely something that scientists and researchers and doctors have tried to understand more. There's a lot of neuroscientific headway into understanding how depression works. But when we look at the clinic and when we look at an individual, we're still treating based on symptoms. It's like saying somebody's having chest pain. They could be having a heart attack, but you're only looking at the chest pain. Oh, I'm feeling pain in my chest. Well, that's not all you're going to do if you were to look at a cardiac problem. You, you know, take a lot of sophisticated measures. And the problem is that with psychiatric disorders, we don't tend to do that. We tend to try to address things symptomatically. And that kind of treatment, sadly, is not very effective. Why is it that there's this distinction between how we go about solving physical problems and ones of a psychiatric nature? Because of course you're right. If you went to the doctor with chest pains, they would not give you painkillers for the pain and tell you to go away. They would say, well, this is concerning. Let's run a number of tests. And in doing so, there's an appreciation of the complex variety of causes. And the fact is implied that a different cause would lead to a different solution. But we seem to have missed that for the most part, with psychiatric illnesses? Yes, you know, it's because of several reasons. The first is, of course, when we look at the substrate of a lot of psychiatric illness that is, 
you know, it's embedded in how the brain works. We are making a lot of headway into how the brain works with very expensive imaging tools. But how often do those tools get translated into the clinic? You know, can a physician or a psychiatrist or psychologist use such tools? So there are very few people really working at that translational interface from the lab to the clinic, which is where our work is deeply embedded. And of course, the other reason is the brain itself is very complex. And there are many reasons why, you know, a person may feel depressed. In fact, depression can be, you know, very different in terms of the underlying causes for one person versus another. It may still show up as low mood in two people, but the underlying causes may be very different. So we need to be able to account for many different channels of assessment, not just one single type of brain function. So that adds to the complexity. You know, the last thing I'd mention is that the biological underpinnings of depression is just one way we understand it, but there's social behavioral reasons, there's psychological reasons, there's a whole line of thought with, you know, Freud way of dealing with depression. So it's just such a mixed field, in some ways enriched field, that data and quantification of how a depression actually comes about, how can we use that kind of data to treat it, is actually a very much a 21st century science now. Yeah, and there's something that makes a lot of sense there. And as far as if something really is so complex, and we can understand it in genetic terms, but also social terms, or Freud would say early developmental terms, you are almost forced to deal with the symptoms. Because as you say, it's a very 21st century pursuit to try and unpick those that multivariate analysis to really get to the heart of what's causing it. So given that that's how we're treating it, how would you characterize the effectiveness of current treatments? The current treatment, so if we look at antidepressants, medications, they're the first line of treatment. And what we see in large clinical works, which is done in the form of these randomized clinical trials, we see that antidepressants work only a little bit better than placebo, and they can potentially take care of 30% of patients, and that 30% of people will not have a recurrence of depression, whereas the rest of the people will. And the more you fail an antidepressant, it is less likely that you'll respond with something else also. So your chances of becoming more severe and treatment refractory also go up over time. There are also other approved treatments such as transcranial magnetic stimulation. That is also something that we look into for severe patients. There's also now ketamine-oriented therapies. These are all clinically approved, but again, the treatment prevalence still is at about 30%. And, you know, you've written that and I'm quoting here, simply put, current healthcare standards are mostly just asking people how they feel and then writing a prescription for medication. Now, given the relatively low success rate, or what at least sounds to me like a relatively low success rate for curing quote-unquote depression, are you surprised that there isn't a greater move towards the type of research that you're doing and the type of research we're about to discuss? 
I am surprised, but at the same time, I think not many of us are trained at this sort of intersection between the clinical sciences and the basic sciences. So I think there has to be a certain mindset where individuals who are very much well trained in you know, basic systems, data systems, then have this great urge to go and serve a clinical issue. I think that kind of niche is not being served as much, but I think it's definitely coming up in the field. So I'm excited to have more colleagues working with us in the area. Well, I mean, I think that's a very good time to sort of bring in the study itself. Now, when I read the study, it very much seemed like a conceptual leap between how we're previously treating depression and how we're hoping to treat depression in the future. Can you characterize that conceptual leap? Yes, Jamie, for us as well, it felt like a conceptual leap because how we think about depression is that whenever one person comes in to tell me about their symptoms, as a scientist, I want to know more. I want to know about how their brain functions, how their cognition functions, which means how their attention, their memory systems, their response to emotions work. I want to know also about their lifestyle. I want to know how they sleep, how they eat, how their activity levels are. Because if you actually look at the literature, you'll see that there are all of these studies testing one or the other of these specific ideas. So, for example, there are sleep interventions for depression. There are physical exercise-based interventions for depression and diet-based interventions. And these exist in parallel with antidepressant treatments, like medication treatments. And surprisingly, if you see the outcome success of these trials, they're as good. 30% of people get better. So when someone comes in, I don't want to give them a chance that, okay, well, in a third of the case, you'll get better, but the rest of the time you won't really. So let's just throw the kitchen sink at you, or let's just try one thing and let's see what happens. That's not exactly how a scientist would go about it. So Our first goal really was, can we easily measure all of these things? And easily is a key because when we think about when we're depressed, we don't want to take part in too many things. It's hard to even get out of bed sometimes. So we wanted to create tools that were easy to use. They were deployable in the home setting. People could use their phones. People could wear a smartwatch. People could come in for very brief, you know, 30-minute appointments to get their brain function checked. The conceptually part of it was also to figure out how are we going to run a trial, say, show this scientifically that if we give customized interventions to people, A, how are we going to customize it? How are we going to personalize, individualize based on data, not just based on some random insight that we have from an interview, but based on data, how will we go about doing this N of one approach, this precision approach that happens in potentially other fields right now in cancer therapy, it's very big, but how do we bring that into mental health? So that is essentially the conceptually part of it, which is sort of necessary to do the next piece of work, which is treatment in a data-driven, AI-guided manner. And I'm sure we're going to dive into that. Yeah, so there's two things that stand out there. The first is that, of course, when somebody is depressed, it's very difficult to get participation in trials that is energy-intensive. 
that's almost the game of having depression. So clearly any forward thinking depression treatment is going to have to take that into account. But the second thing there, and you mentioned the innovations in cancer that we're already seeing, is that with depression, there are so many variables. Taking a snapshot approach, so this isn't personalized, but rather having somebody come in in an energy intensive way and seeing how their life is amongst a whole range of variables, diet, sleep, job satisfaction, as well as trying to piece together any medical details in terms of family history, is going to give you a picture that could be interpreted in numerous ways. And what I hear when you talk about the details of personalization is it really gives you an opportunity to track these variables in relation to each other in a way that's just not possible every three weeks or three months when you're seeing snapshots. Absolutely. You know, it provides this information about what's happening in this interim between one or the other doctor's visit and tells you, hey, the data is saying this person maybe undergoing these specific challenges. Our goal is really to use the data to empower the individual and their provider to understand what's underlying the low mood. Because for the person, the low mood state is what is the big cloud. You don't really see beneath that. But I think all the data that we try to capture will be able to provide these insights. One of the things that we really like about the direction we took is also that in the literature, when you try the concept of personalization, usually the way it is done is that you take certain data from the person and you try to fit them into certain buckets, which is that this person may be looking like uh, maybe a hundred of these other people versus not like a hundred other people. And so let's compare what one person's data is like to other people's data. And that's the conventional approach. And that gives you certain information about you know, whether the person may like to do psychotherapy or antidepressant treatment or something like that. That kind of approach, though, sometimes is bottlenecked by how much other person's data you have to start out with. And all of this other person's data also needs to be filled with all the variables you want to check for one person. The way we wanted to do things differently was based on the science that data is best when it belongs to that person alone. And personalization can happen on that person's data without comparison to other people. So what I want to know is that, Jamie, whether or not you may be depressed or not, I would like to enhance your well-being state. And in order to do that, I'm not going to compare you to 100 other people. I'm just going to say, hey, let's just collect all this data and figure out how you're living your life over the next month. And let's see from that itself over the fluctuations that happen over time. Sometimes you're feeling really good. Sometimes you may be feeling just fine. Sometimes maybe not so good. Let's try to figure out what's predicting those changes. And that's essentially what we're looking at. Really intensive sort of assessments, but still non-burdensome at the same time. They're very brief touch points, a minute at a time, but still over a long period of time. So you can understand one person and their data alone and take insights from that 
without much comparison to others. Of course, we do think that, you know, when we're able to do this with a lot of people, we will get more insights from, you know, how many people are interacting with the system as well. But the fact that it can be done with one person alone is very exciting. Yeah, especially when with something like depression, you have overlapping symptoms. So I could be depressed and sleeping badly, and you could be depressed and sleeping badly. But the sleep might be relevant in my case, but not for you. Or it could be induced by something totally different. And when you have a multivariate analysis with overlapping moving parts, the raw data doesn't tell you very much, especially when it's been collated at snapshots as opposed to moment by moment. You're left with a puzzle you're trying to interpret, and red herrings I'd imagine everywhere in your attempt to diagnose it. And that's why the moment-to-moment upkeep of the tracking is so interesting. How does that work in practice? If I have depression and I'm a member of the study, well, I guess there's two questions here. Firstly, what variables are being tracked? And secondly, how is that happening in practice? Sure. So if you were to come to the study, you would do your first assessment with us, which might be at a clinic or at a lab. Our tools are very much scalable to any setting. We could also come to your home and do this. And we'd record how your brain is functioning while you're also engaged in a bunch of different cognitive tasks. And cognitive tasks would be around assessing aspects of how you're paying attention, how you're memorizing items, how you're responding to emotions and rewards and so on. This is just a very simple, actually game-like assessment set and it's only going to last about 30 minutes or so, then we're done. The brain function gets analyzed using EEG data, so electroencephalography. We're not putting you into a very fancy big machine like an MRI at this stage. And then after that, we are just going to use an app that you can download on your phone. And we'll request you to enter aspects about your mood and also some parts about your sleep, how active you are, and also your diet. They're all very small checkpoint questions. And you'll get notifications to fill these in about, you know, two to four times a day or so on. And you'll do this for the next month with us. Every two weeks, you'll also come by to check out how your brain's doing. And the last thing, we'll give you a watch if you don't have one already. You may have an Apple Watch or you may have another kind of Fitbit or something like that already. But if you don't have one, we'll give you one. And then you will say, okay, try to wear the watch as much as possible other than the time that you're charging it. Try to wear it as much as you can because the watch will tell us about how you sleep and also how active you are. And then in more recent work, we've also added aspects of how you interact with other people, how socially interactive you are, because that's also something that's important for depression. So all of these data from apps and the wearables and the brain data all go into one big multivariate model that you know you alluded to in your question and I think the excitement in the work is also that we build on a very collaborative effort with engineering with putting in the tools that are sophisticated enough to look at that multivariate data in many different ways so when we think about sort of the next thing you ask how do you go about analyzing such data probably in simplest statistics, you could do, you know, a multivariate regression model is what one would run. And that's actually the very most basic kind of 
machine learning model as one would think about it. But machine learning has many different kinds of model techniques available within its umbrella. And that is also an assumption we don't take. What we say is that the way Jamie's mood may work for a month in terms of its patterns may also be very different from how my mood may work in its pattern. So if one kind of model may fit your data because of the way the distribution looks may be very different from how the data may be fitted by another model for a different person. So that is also something we look in our work is that we're not settling on one kind of model, which is the model that gives us the best performance is what we're going for. This podcast episode is sponsored by Biobox Analytics. Biobox is a data analytics platform designed for scientists and clinicians working with next generation sequencing data. With Biobox, you can design and run bioinformatic pipelines on demand, generate publication-ready plots, and discover insights using popular public databases. Spots are limited, so sign up for the waitlist and be the first to access a free account at biobox.io. And that's presumably a process that's refined over time. The more people who engage with it, the more nuanced models you can get. So rather than putting people in broad buckets based on other people's data at snapshots, you get increasingly personalized diagnoses. The radical thing here, to me, is that for a long time in psychiatric medicine, we've been symptom-oriented rather than looking at what is really causing the mood swings, say. And as we've touched on, the complication with diagnosing the problem is that I could be totally different to you. And the pattern that works for me might be different to the pattern that works for you. Obviously, you're dealing with a huge range of variables. How heavily do you lean on the machine learning and how heavily do you lean on the consultations in trying to fit a picture together to establish some kind of causal relationship? Yeah, so that's a great point. We currently in the scientific space, we heavily lean on the models, the machine learning models. At the same time, our goals until now were to figure out how we're going to generate this kind of machine learning pipeline that takes into account many different kinds of models, then is able to compare the accuracies of these models, then take the best model and then extract and reveal what are the predictors that come out for each person. And the goal in the published work until now was to really just figure this out. And our work going forward is really to integrate aspects of these qualitative aspects of what does the clinician say? How does their insight come in? How does the patient's themselves insight come in? Because the main point you're really touching at is that these models until now and the data until now is still correlative in that it is collected all at the same time, but still doesn't mean that we've come up with a causal interpretation. What we've come up with are certain things predict low mood in any given individual. But the next goal is to see if we were to target those specific predictors, will that actually go on to change mood? And that will make it more causal. Yes, there's an interesting detail here. How do you judge success when you're thinking about people taking part in these trials? And how do you judge success when it comes to the eventual treatment of depression? Absolutely. I think the work is, until now, is methodological, given that we've discussed how we've made this conceptual leap forward into saying, 
if I go into the trial, I may get a mindfulness intervention, whereas somebody else goes into the trial, they may get a physical activity intervention. How we're going to decide that is where we're at right now to say this is what the data says. And that is defined by the accuracies of the models that produce the least error. And the accuracy is basically saying the model gives you a prediction of how the mood of the person fluctuates over time. And how does that prediction meet the actual data? And the model that's giving the best prediction of the data is the most accurate model. If we were to do this for every person coming in, the next step would be to really turn this study into what's called a closed loop piece of work, which is that you would target the exact predictor that you think is related to depression in that person. So for example, in my case, if stress becomes the most prominent factor, then I have a specific kind of mindfulness intervention to provide to the person, which is myself say, and I will do that for a certain prescribed period of time. And then I will see how my mood is changing. Sometimes we can also work with not just one predictor, but two predictors at the same time, given that they're both highly strong predictors. The goal really is that we want to improve beyond the current benchmarks for depression treatment. If they're at 30%, we want to get at 60, 70, 80%. The point is, do this sort of personalized approaches get us there. And that will be the true test of, you know, this kind of sophisticated data guided approaches. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that the implications for treating other types of psychiatric illnesses are big because depression is incredibly complex. There's a million variables. It's very difficult to track. So in some ways, this sounds like to someone who's not involved in the study, sort of one of the biggest beasts of psychiatry in as far as its medical impact and its complication in diagnosing. So if a personalized approach can help here, am I right in thinking it could be applied to bipolarism, schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. I think that we can take a similar approach in other related disorders as well, anxiety, bipolar, work that we've already started, potentially maybe schizophrenia as well. It would have to be more nuanced to the actual variables that are sensitive in each disorder. And that's what the literature informs us with. But absolutely, the goals for us are to take the full circle closed loop in depression in parallel also try to expand to these related disorders because we think there's a lot of need you know i think the methods themselves also have to be refined enough and we have to show the effectiveness and you know kind of iteratively improve them as we go i'm wondering if there's an inherent benefit to personalization when you're talking about something like depression because depression as anyone who's suffered it will know is in some cases made worse and is stickier because you don't think or have reasonable hope it's going to improve, which is a further depressing thought. Whereas when something is personalized, you might, I'm just wondering whether you'll run into some kind of almost placebo-esque effect where people feel, oh my God, this is being tailored to me. There is really something to be hopeful about and optimistic about in terms of my treatment. Yes, I think that can be the case. So two things about that. What we're excited about is that data can be empowering in many ways, revealing to a person that, you know, hey, look, the way you're sleeping is really changing the way your mood works. And it's not just telling them that sleep is a predictor, but 
giving very specific and personalized insights, which is looks like when you sleep at 10 p.m. versus when you're sleeping at 11 p.m., your mood is much better. Why don't we try sleeping at 10 p.m. very consistently? That might be for one person, but for another person, they may be a you know 2 a.m. sleeper. The 10 p.m. is never going to apply to them. So I'm not giving the 10 p.m. insight to the 2 a.m. sleeper. The 2 a.m. sleeper, if they're predictors are still asleep, their variation might be 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. You know, something I just made that up. But the point is that the data gives very actionable insights. It's based on your lifestyle, your physiology, your social behaviors. And that is, I think, empowering because now we have very specific goals to work on on a week-to-week basis. It's just how... You know, when we're trying to build body muscle, we're like, okay, let's just go and do, you know, 30 push-ups. And that's the goal to get to. We'll start with five a day and maybe we'll get to 30. But the goal is very quantifiable. I think the work that's also exciting for us is can we give these quantifiable insights and work towards them in baby steps and be able to change something so subjective as mood. The second part of your question was, yes, it can have a placebo effect. Depression is known to be cured by placebo, and that could be something that we test in the work by doing randomized control studies, where what happens when we apply personalized versus non-personalized approaches? What happens you know, when we test the personalized approach on top of standard of care, does standard of care improve? You know, this is the gold standard we have right now is the current medications where we started out in our talk, they work at 30% level. If we can improve standard of care, we're clearly doing something better. And so I think all of those kinds of trials are upcoming for us. Yeah, speaking of standard of care, I mean, the very obvious way that the doctor is empowered is because they have more information and can make more targeted diagnoses. But there's also a subtle point of empowerment for doctors here, which is this type of work is likely to bring out new nuances into the treatments themselves. So a meditation-based intervention or an exercise-based intervention or a medication-based intervention are going to reveal themselves to be more and less effective in different contexts. And it might be that if you are a mindfulness practitioner and your emphasis is on using mindfulness to cure depression, in X number of cases. Well, as you get data and see how people are responsive to that treatment, you'll be able to develop the treatment itself as well. So it's not just the patients who are empowered, it's also the doctors and the treatment givers to further and further refine their treatments and get more and more nuanced and more personalized, even in the context of the treatments themselves. Absolutely, Jamie. That is something on the horizon that really excites us to continue to do this work forward. I mean, the way the pandemic has hit, I've been talking to some psychiatrists and literally some of them are managing a panel of 900 to 1,000 patients at a time. And that's just unheard of. And this is something you, you know, you talk to a person for five minutes, 10 minute appointments once every three months in a small snapshot. How much can you learn about them? And then to make insightful decisions just based on your experience it can be wrong. It's also based on average data that you've had success of treating. But again, in current clinical standards, there's no way to get at personalization because of the burden that 
practitioners see in their clinics. And to say that maybe we can also help the clinician and unburden them with these kinds of data where the data themselves are revealing the insights for that person. It's not that you have to go on and guesswork. I think it can, you know, decrease the stress burden for both the clinician and also potentially provide better outcomes. Yeah. And of course, a clinician is constantly thinking, am I allowing my own bias here to get in the way of my diagnosis? Am I naturally more inclined to suggest X rather than Y? And the data is an incredibly useful way of letting the physician get out of their own way. And, you know, it's interesting because if you think about an exercise-based treatment, the exercise-based treatment that works for me might be different to the one that works for you. And that could be a point of intensity. It could be a point of regularity. It's only by having this kind of data that you can make personalization even within the category of treatments. So in that context, what are the next steps for the research? So yes, Jamie, we're super excited about what's coming next for us. Our current work has put together the conceptual and data insights for the personalization to take place. And for us, we are really going to go test this out, whether personalization and the data, if it's revealing that a certain kind of intervention may work for a person, how do we provide that intervention as the next step? And just like any intervention right now, say psychotherapy is usually provided for four to eight weeks, we're going to go in and provide that specific intervention as well. And this will be already evidence-based work. So for example, for sleep, there is sleep insomnia-based cognitive behavioral therapy. So we're going to take insights from that. If it's around stress and mindfulness, we already have evidence-based modules that can enhance well-being in the context of mindfulness. And physical activity, you know, we touched base on that as well, that the regularity of the physical activity, the kind of physical activity that a person does can also matter. And that's, again, going to be tailored to the individual. The goal is that we're not actually creating many new therapies. What we are, we're routing people to evidence-based therapies that would work for them and make it easier to track their progress in these kinds of individualized therapies. And also another point I'll make is using data to provide greater access to care. The point about that is that, you know, personally, I've had experiences with depression as a graduate student. And just last week, I think there was a paper that came out that showed that depression is extremely prevalent in the PhD students. And my experience was going to the student health clinic. They told me that it would take four weeks to get an appointment. But I'm in my crisis moment now. I don't need an appointment in four weeks. So the delays in the system with access to care, I think that sometimes, especially with, you know, mild to moderate cases, I think we can provide more help than sometimes the overburdened system is not able to take us in. And it's such an important point, because if you could have up-to-date data and make recommendations yourself or have very quick recommendations made to you on the basis of that data, your crisis moments could be resolved to some degree and get you out of the crisis by doing something much more accessible necessarily than anything that a doctor would have to provide. So if you noticed, for example, that one of your big predictors was exercise or sleep, you could have a good guess that changing your exercise and sleep accordingly will be effective enough 
in the short term to get you out of the crisis moment, which takes the burden off mental health care professionals and the waiting lists to a massive degree. I mean, depression as a graduate student is also something that I've run into. And you do turn up, you really do turn up and you really get, well, this is 12 weeks. You know, I'll see you in three months time. But what will happen inevitably, and you know this intuitively, is you turn up in three months time and there's a snapshot and you're given something you sort of already vaguely know about and you walk away feeling slightly dissatisfied. And it's not because there's a lack of care from the professional helping you. It's because they can't possibly be as useful as they'd like to be without relevant access to data. So, I mean, I think that's a brilliant place to say and emphasize the importance and potential significance of this work in changing the goalposts. And this represents a real conceptual leap from what's gone before. And I'm really looking forward to seeing exactly where this goes. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for supporting our work. And we're excited to make this more evidence-based and available to everyone who needs it. Dr. Mishra, I really appreciate your time and I'm incredibly excited about the research. Everyone, that was Dr. Jyoti Mishra and this has been The Scientist Podcast. As always, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.